Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. The final text in our series is Volume 1 of Karl Marx's Capital. Marx is a fitting point at which to finish not only because of his fame, but also because he explicitly built his political economy using for his raw materials many of the texts that we have reviewed. He is a perfect illustration of one of the guiding themes of this series, that political economy was a public knowledge in Britain, yet to be stabilised by institutions and textbooks, hence it was fluid and susceptible to constant redirection. Marx's concern was not with statecraft, nor with detecting God's general laws in the hardships of poverty, nor with the decline of humanity from its savage state. Instead, Marx used political economy as a vehicle for the emancipation of humanity. Volume 1 of Capital represents a heady mix of German metaphysics, the history of political economy, and technical argumentation regarding topics such as the quantitative determination of relative value. It is a mix that has proved seductive to generations of students, scholars, and revolutionaries, and which has proved inexhaustible for interpreters. The inexhaustibility of Marx's text owes to two factors. The first relates to the vagaries of the publication and reception of texts. Marx was initially read as an economist, as per the portrait of Marx cultivated by Friedrich Engels after his friend's death and based on the three volumes of Capital. Then, in the 1930s, the publication of some of Marx's earlier manuscripts made it possible to discover an earlier, supposedly humanist Marx who was preoccupied with the concept of alienation. The notion that there was a young Marx distinct from the mature Marx obviously gave rise to the problem of how to account for the reorientation and of deciding if it was a good or bad development. Oceans of ink have been spilt on these issues. Equally important has been the fact that in English, no reliable edition of Volume 1 of Capital exists. Marx finally managed to get Book 1 of Volume 1 published in German in 1867, and then revised it for the second German edition of 1872, and then produced yet another text for a French edition. Meanwhile, the third German edition of Volume 1 represents the base text for the English edition of Volume 1, which was heavily adulterated by Engels. In other words, it is not only possible to reinterpret this text, but to literally access different texts by moving between the different editions. The second reason that Marx's capital has proved inexhaustible relates to the method adopted in the text and widely emulated by Marxist scholars. Marx studied at university in Bonn and Berlin, moving his focus from law to philosophy as he encountered the metaphysics of Hegel, for which Germany was, and is, famous. The crucial idea that Marx took from his encounter with metaphysics was the idea of critique, that the process of criticising concepts, their relations, conclusions and omissions would reveal an alternative, imminent truth. Here is a revealing statement of Marx's method found in his notes on political economy. The categories of bourgeois society provide an insight into the structure and the relations of production of all formerly existing social formations, and the ruins of these social formations were used in the creation of bourgeois society. So too could the ruins of bourgeois political economy provide the elements for a new, scientific political economy. Marx seems to have started this process of reading political economy in 1844 for the book that would be published as Capital Volume 1 in 1867. The enormous quantity of notes that he carried around with him were both the input and the output of his critique. What were the sources that Marx began reading in 1844? Keith Tribe explains. 
We do actually have his early notes on this, which demonstrate that he first of all began not with the English political economists, as would be normally assumed. He began by reading Jean-Baptiste Say, the French political economist who was really the dominant writer in this area, who, who across Europe, in the United States, and to some extent in Britain, very much shaped the general perspective on political economy and how one would write books about political economy. He didn't actually read Jean-Baptiste Say's book very carefully. He mostly made use of a sort of annotated guide to it at the back of it, looking up various things. And then he went on to read Adam Smith in a French edition, I uh, didn't read all of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations either. He then went on to read Ricardo, Ricardo's Principles in a French edition. Didn't read all of this either. In fact, the only book that he did demonstrably read all the way through from his notes was James Mill's Elements of Political Economy in a French translation again. And so in 1844, he laid a foundation and came to appreciate over the next couple of years, the very leading role in all these arguments of Ricardo and particularly his distributional theory that Ricardo had set out to, uh, he had set out an analysis of political economy, which was based around a theory of distribution, distribution between workers and capitalists and landlords. And what Marx saw in this was the prospect of transforming this analysis of this political economy of distribution into an analysis of the political economy of capitalism, of the inherent conflicts and contradictions between capitalists on the one side and workers on the other, which is, in a sense, the general story of Capital Volume 1. Malthus, for example, partially glimpsed the tendency for capitalist production to require the surplus population when he noted that capital could accumulate more quickly than population. What he failed to see, according to Marx, was that capitalism could not content itself with a natural increase of population because it always required an industrial reserve army ready for immediate deployment as need arose, whether from the creation of a new branch of industry or the resurgence of an old one. Ricardo looks better in Marx's grade book. Marx gave Ricardo generous praise for examining issues with great honesty and intellect and making genuine scientific discoveries. Nevertheless, Ricardo was also chastised for failing to break through the categories of bourgeois political economy. He succumbed to the tendency to treat bourgeois categories as if they were timeless, conjuring mythical hunter-gatherers who were subject to the same laws of production and distribution as workers in 19th century England. Marx's essential point is one for which he is justly famous. Economic processes do not operate in a social vacuum, but are intensely conditioned by time and place. The implication is that true political economy may not limit itself to explaining the economics of bourgeois society, but must discover more fundamental laws, those laws that have brought society up to its current stage. It has been said that Marx is a theorist of history above all. As Marx wrote in the preface to the first German edition, his concern was not with the state of social conflict between workers and capitalists, it was with the laws that produced this conflict with iron necessity and which moved the conflict toward inevitable results. This claim points us back towards the Hegelian basis of Marx's thought. Yet the ambition of capital was to express these claims in technical form. Here the central concept of the work is surplus value, the mystery at the heart of capitalism, since if value exchanges for equivalent value, then no surplus should ever arise. The process is simply one of metamorphosis, from money or capital into commodities 
and back to money. Yet the second movement, from commodities into money, must result in a greater quantity of money than at the beginning of the cycle if the capitalist is to make a profit. This is the contradiction announced at the end of chapter 5. Its resolution is found in the following chapters, and the essential claim is this. Labour power is a special commodity. Labour as commodity is bought at rates sufficient for its reproduction, feeding and clothing the labourer and training them at whatever level. But once the capitalist has purchased labour as a commodity, they have effectively bought the rights to its labour power, which, unlike the costs of reproducing labour, is not a fixed quantity. Labour power, as the exercise of human mind and flesh, is a capacity. Marx was consequently concerned with the processes by which the worker was separated from their labour power. It was in this context that he made some of his famous comments regarding the nature of capital as a social relation. Only in some times and places were workers obliged to enter the market and sell their labour power in order to live. Only in those times and places where the means of production were controlled by a class of capitalists. As provocative as these statements are, they hardly amount to the identification of the laws of capitalism. They function instead as a redescription of commercial life with a morally charged vocabulary built from a critique of previous political economy. This is perhaps to be expected given Marx's mode of working. Searching for the imminent can take time. The other volumes were never completed by Marx, and what his disciples published under his name was drawn together from his endless notes and plans. Nevertheless, the appeal of exposing ideological biases and forging a new political economy has hardly dimmed since Marx's death in 1884. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought, written and spoken by me, Dr. Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Keith Tribe. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyebi.